Welcome to the True Crime Birth Podcast, where we share the injustices and crimes against women throughout history in the most vulnerable setting one can be in, the setting of childbirth. From the 1900s to current times, we will recall these tragic and problematic birth stories, bringing to light the dark history of birth in our society. This podcast comes with a trigger warning and is not suitable for those who may have unresolved birth trauma. We're taking it back to the 1700s with Mary Wollstonecraft, the story of literary genius, tragic birth, and the creation of Frankenstein. Mary was born April 27, 1759, in London, England. She was a famous writer. She wrote novels, travel narratives. She wrote about the history of the French Revolution, a children's book, and more. Her most famous work being A Vindication of the Rights of Women, in which she argues that women are not naturally inferior to men, projecting the reality where social order is founded on reason, reason being that men and women should be treated equally as rational beings. This was completely ahead of her time in the 1700s. Her ideologies made such a revolutionary impact that still to this day and throughout history, feminists and human rights activists cite her life and her writings. When she was an adult, she traveled a lot around Europe, reading journals and studying different information, particularly about the French Revolution. And she ended up in Paris with her lover, who was Gilbert Imlay. She had a relationship with him, but they never got married. Together, both Gilbert and Mary had their firstborn daughter, Fanny. Fanny's named after one of Mary's best friends growing up. They just started this new family, and it was already beginning to end because Mary was deep diving into research for her writings on the French Revolution, and she was constantly educating everybody around her that the problem with society was that girls were not getting the same education as boys. She figured the French Revolution was a perfect time to start bringing up the fact that education wasn't equal and it was causing a huge injustice in society. But Gilbert was a 1700s man and expected her to be way more domesticated to just be focusing on breastfeeding their newborn and cleaning up the house and making him food. But he didn't think that she had time to do all of this research for all of these writings and outside the homework. So one day he was like, I'm leaving and I'll be back. Over the next few months, he would send her letters here and there And she would question, where are you? When are you coming back? And he basically was just pushing it off and pushing it off. And then his letters started decreasing and decreasing until finally she didn't really hear from him anymore. So Mary was alone in Paris by herself with an infant, probably had postpartum depression. This was during the French Revolution, so ships weren't bringing in a lot of food and It was really rough for everybody in France at this point. Things were really harsh. Um, So it forced her to return to Britain. And after some time in 1795, she attempted to commit suicide. Um, She hoped that Gilbert would see that she was struggling. 
and hoped that he would come back and assist her so that she could be relieved from this postpartum depression and hardship she was going through. Gilbert continued to neglect her and completely ignored the suicide attempt. And so she ended up committing or attempting to commit suicide for a second time and wrote about it in a note to Gilbert, basically saying that she hoped he never had to understand what he put her through. She basically went out into the rain, soaked her big dress as much as she could, walking back and forth in this rainstorm until it was really, really heavy. She then jumped into a river drenched with her heavy clothes so that she would sink. But a stranger saw and jumped in and rescued her, and she was saved a second time from suicide. Gradually, she started writing again and started speaking with people and hanging out with people who were of similar mindset as her, people who were against the social norms, who wanted to fix the education system, anarchists, feminists, anybody who was willing to basically listen to her ideologies of equality. And in that, she met William Godwin and became very passionate with him, and it was a really deep love affair. He loved her writings and talked about them being what made him fall completely in love with her. William Godwin was famous in his own right, as he was one of the forefathers of the anarchist movement. The two decided to get married in 1797, despite him already saying in a lot of his anarchist work that he didn't believe in marriage and none of his anarchy group friends believed in marriage either. And so he got a lot of flack for this decision, but they did it anyway and they did it for their unborn baby and so that they could combine more as a family with her first daughter, Fanny. Despite being married, they still wanted to keep their views of being independent and really drive into their work. And so he actually, um, when they moved, he bought a apartment just like 20 doors down from their home where he would do his work and she would have her space to do her work so they weren't in each other's ways. And in fact, if they stayed the night over at the office after studying and doing their works, um, they would just write each other letters and they both loved it. It's exactly what they both needed and there was really no pressure from either of them and they were both flourishing. That same year, she gave birth to her second daughter on August 30th, 1797. Mary Wollstonecraft chose to have a female midwife, and this was becoming very uncommon as they were highly promoting male midwives and obstetricians. Her preference for a female midwife was seen socially as an act of the political statement that she would not give up her body to men midwives and obstetrical medicine, which was becoming more and more common, and she saw it as just another way that men were controlling women during this time. Because at this time, there was an obvious turnover where males were titling themselves as superior to the midwives who had been practicing this forever. So now at this time, female midwives lost any authority and now had to answer to the male midwife or an OB. They weren't allowed to use any obstetrical devices. 
they weren't allowed to use anything like forceps or any other emergency equipment, even if they worked in a lay hospital, which is basically labor and delivery. They had to refer to an OB for any emergency care, despite previously practicing emergency care throughout history. It was very common at this time to be convinced that male was superior at understanding the female body over a female midwife who was in practice for years and years. Some male midwives and OBs took into consideration the work of the female midwives that have attended birth throughout time before them, but many male obstetrics and male midwives were trying to take as much authority in the birth space as they could. And they could. As women were often thought of as property of men back then, no one batted an eye to this idea. So Mary hired Mrs. Bleckensop, a great midwife and a matron who also worked at the Lying-In Hospital. She knew her previously from her first pregnancy with Fanny and really trusted her that everything would go well because everything in her first pregnancy went really well. So here's the story of her birth. At about 5 o'clock in the morning, she noticed some labor signs and sent for the midwife. She also sent her husband away and chose to not have him present. So he waited closely by and just waiting for a word from the midwife on updates and things like that. The labor went really seamlessly normal, really well. And at 11.20 that night, her baby girl, Mary, was born. At 2 a.m., the midwife told William that the placenta was retained. And because it had been over two hours, she was not allowed to proceed as the provider. So she had to have him go get the provider and bring him as fast as possible. If the midwife wasn't under the authority of a doctor, a male doctor, or a male midwife, she would have let more time go past because the placenta can often remain in utero for quite some time, and there's many ways to expel it naturally by position changes, um, even herbs she may have used. But because she was under the authority of a male doctor, she had to quickly send for them. She told William to get Dr. Poynand, whose title was physician and man midwife. Dr. Poynand arrived about four hours after the birth. He showed up, and this is the 1700s, so they didn't know um, as much about germs and sanitation and hand washing. There was no quick and easy gloves you pick up at the store. So he walked into this birth and without washing his hands, wearing no gloves, nothing, he immediately started to extract the placenta. He reached in with his dirty hands and removed the placenta piece by piece, aggressively tearing it out. And after a while, after doing this for quite some time, he decided to leave. He thought he'd gotten it all out, and despite the vast amounts of blood loss she was having, he felt like he did an amazing job. He left the birth completely confident that everything would be fine, 
somehow. Um, despite getting any guidance from the midwife who had been with her throughout pregnancy and who had, again, done years and years of midwifery, he, of course, didn't ask her her opinion, and he just left. But Mary continued to have very heavy blood loss, and nothing was done about her blood loss. They, I don't know if they knew what they could have done at that point. So... She was bleeding out. She was having several fainting spells throughout the night. For the next few days, she seemed to be doing okay, so they thought. But then just four days later, she had severe shaking, chills. She started to really worsen. Her condition worsened immensely. Um, Two days after that, they brought in Dr. John Clark because they thought she may need an operation. So Dr. Clark was the leading specialist in disease and in sepsis and things like that. He's the one who suggested that there was placenta still left inside Mary's womb. He had no solutions for this other than just supportive care. So this was obviously puperal fever. And puperal, it means around the time of childbirth. So around the time of childbirth fever, which is what they called it throughout the 1700s into the 19th centuries. And it still remains a potential threat in a lot of developing nations. And it's caused most often by infection of group A streptococcal bacteria during or immediately following childbirth. And It's also transmissible between different patients. During the historic epidemic periods, infection almost always proved fatal for mothers who exhibited symptoms of fever, abdominal pain, and vaginal hemorrhage. So this is definitely what was happening to her because of his dirty hands, because she had an opened wound inside from him tearing out the placenta and possibly leaving some behind. It actually wasn't till the 1800s that um, a professor named Oliver Wendell Holmes started to increase awareness of the mode of transmission and implementing preventative measures against further spread of the infection. Um, In developed nations, the fever poses little significant risk to expecting mothers And especially now, we would just use antibiotics if something like this were to happen. If there was an infection, you would just get a dose of antibiotics. We also prevent this by wearing gloves when anybody is going to touch near the vaginal canal or the uterus at all. So now a week had gone by since then, and the shivering continued. She was confused, but tried her best to remain as coherent as possible. But she knew something was off and still discussed with her husband all of the details of everything about caring for the girls if she were to die from this. Sadly, Sunday, September 10th at 7.40 p.m., Mary Wollstonecroft passed away from the retained placental infection and sepsis due to the dirty hands of the doctor and his inability to properly extract the placenta. 
Would the midwife have been able to wait for the natural expelling of the placenta and waited for the physiological course of the afterbirth or used herbs or had the doctors come sooner or known what to do in that scenario and known how to actually prepare and be sanitized while performing a procedure like this? Mary may have well very lived on and avoided any infection altogether and would have lived past her age of only 38. Though their relationship was short-lived, her husband, William Godwin, was absolutely and utterly devastated that his love was gone. He eventually remarried and raised Mary's two daughters. Fanny, her firstborn, had left home at the age of 22 and unfortunately committed suicide. Mary, her second and last, eloped to a man named Percy Shelley at the age of 16. Together they had four children, and only one child, Percy Jr., survived to adulthood. Mary's husband, Percy, died by drowning eight years after they were married. So Mary had to support herself and Percy Jr., and she did this by using her inherited genius from her mother. Mary wrote one of the most iconic stories of all time that we've all heard of, Frankenstein. She lived to be in her 50s. Mary Wollstonecraft left behind an amazing legacy that pushed the boundaries of society. Her words of female empowerment lived on in her writings and are still prevalent today. Her baby, Mary Shelley, like her mother, also left behind an eventful life full of writings that inspired generations to come, both proving the ideas that the time period was completely unhinged and wrong, showing the world that women are and were highly intellectual and world-changing. May we fight for our voices the same way that they did and create even more pathways for women to be seen, heard, and valued. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the True Crime Birth Podcast. Stay tuned every other Friday for the next episode. If you have a tragic birth story to share, don't hesitate to reach out and schedule an episode.